Well, this morning, I want to continue a little bit of where we uh, left off a little bit last uh, evening, talking about repentance. And uh, uh, last night, just very quickly, we we're kind of looking at repentance not as uh, uh, coming to God and saying, uh, okay, you got me, I sinned, I did this or I did that, like a particular repentance, but we talked about returning to God and living a repentant life, you know, of, uh, of running to Him and uh, belonging uh, uh, to Him, and that it is a wholehearted uh, following uh, of, the, uh, you know, of the Lord, uh, and uh, identifying with Him, belonging to Him, being attached to Him, being focused on Him, all of those things we, we talked about uh, last night. Uh, and really, you know, when I was saying about how, we, how God is, uh, is king, uh, it, it does remind me um, of the beginning of that very special prayer that is embedded into the uh, Amidah uh, for um, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Untanet Tokef. Uh, and the, the very beginning, it has like a, a little superscription uh, before you actually say the prayer. And it says, um, let holiness rise up to you, for you are our king. You know, uh, or actually it's referring to the, the following prayer, let Kedusha rise up to you, for you are our king. And we, in our uh, regular Shabbat Siddur, we don't have that whole holiness section of the Amidah, uh, but we do part of it. And that is where, uh, when we say Kadosh, 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 right? So on Rosh Hashanah, uh, uh, we say that, Kadosh, Kadosh, after this, after this prayer, uh, sanctifying God's name, calling Him holy. But I think that it is very poignant and important that it begins with, let holiness rise up to you, for you are our king. And uh, may that, uh, you know, indeed uh, be true in our lives. So today, uh, I thought we would talk a little bit about what does this life look, what does it look like when you live this, this way, okay? And then how do you get there? You know, so last night, it was, it's sort of the, uh, the motivating thing of, I want to turn to God, you know? And I want to live for him. Uh, and, we, and we looked at, you know, different verses and, and what that means. But today I thought we would look at, well, what does it look like? And, okay, how do I cultivate really that kind of life? Okay, so what does it look like? When we say, uh, you know, or when we re repent, when we turn, when we return to God, when we come back to God uh, as, as a way of life, uh, what does it look like? Well, certainly it is a life of obedience, right? It's a life of living uh, a Torah-centered life. It's a life of following God in terms of the way we live, okay? And there are a thousand verses that, uh, you know, that we can turn to that describes that. And I thought we'd just look at <laughs> one out of a thousand. Or do you want to do a thousand? We could do that. Anyway, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, beginning in verse 4, it says there, And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? 
Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. So clearly, I, uh, oh, and then the next verse. I have listened and heard they have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his course, like a horse charging into, uh, into battle. Even the stork of the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration, but my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. That is really a great passage that we will remind ourselves of a little bit later in a couple of minutes. Uh, uh, but right here, what he's really saying is, why are my people so, like, thick-headed? Don't they understand the right way to, just like, you know, the birds know when it's time to migrate. You know, if they don't migrate, obviously that's very bad for them. They could die. The, you know, what, what's wrong with my people? Don't they realize the way of life? The, the, uh, the logical thing to do, the thing inbred in them that they're supposed to do. So he compares it. That's why he, he, uh, he says, even the stork in the sky knows her seasons. But my people don't know which end is up, basically, he's saying. So he uses the word return and repent. It's kind of interesting. This is one of the passages where the same word used for repent, repentance, and, and the word return. Okay? And so... I, uh, they're living in apostasy. They're living apart from God. They're, they're in name only, uh, the chosen people. Yes, they have a Jewish mother and probably uh, you know, a Jewish father. And uh, they, uh, they, they know that, that identity. But they're certainly uh, not practicing uh, what, they're, what they're supposed to uh, do. They're living a very sloppy kind of life, you know? Perhaps they bring an offering on a holiday. Perhaps they uh, remember, uh, uh, you know, uh, to eat correctly, or they 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 uh, may remember to go to the temple at the right time. But they're living very sloppily. Uh, they can't figure out, uh, you know, where do I separate myself from the culture in which I live? Uh, how do I? Uh, you know, you know uh, live in a way that is pleasing to God, different perhaps from all the people around me. Uh, they're, they're not thinking that way. They're not doing that. They're just doing basically whatever they want to do, whatever they want to do. These are the very people, though, that cry out to God and say, well, where, where are you? You know, and that's indeed uh, was Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's plight. Uh, these people in Jeremiah's day believed that that um, they're the chosen people, and that uh, God would never destroy the temple. And Jeremiah, shame on you for even suggesting something like that, you know? In fact, they hated Jeremiah so much for pointing out their need to repent. They, th they thought that he was a collaborator with the Babylonians. They thought he was a political collaborator with the Babylonians. Uh, in other words, and isn't this interesting? He was not patriotic. Think about it. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and so, they, uh, they refuse to repent. So, obviously, then, repenting means living an obedient life, right? Turning away from sin. Turning from sin to God, right? Now, last night, 
we did, we did remind ourselves that we usually remember the part about turning from sin. Repentance is turning from sin, right? And we all need to turn from sin, stop sinning, right? Do the right thing, right? Uh, but it's turning to God. It's not turning like to something else or, or just, uh, you know, turning away from sin to turning to do what's right. As we'll see in a few moments, it's turning to uh, turning to God. Okay, uh, now so obedience, living an obedient life, but that is like the most minimal part of of the whole thing. When we repent, it's not just about it's not about behavior modification. It's not about saying, "Well, now I'll try to do the right thing." No, it is running to God, and it is when we run to God, when our eyes are fixed on Him. When we throw ourselves at God, so to speak, that is where real change begins to take place. Okay? So obedience. Uh, secondly, and this is really very interesting, uh, this is a very positive uh, effect of, of uh, what it looks like, living a repentant life. You know, when we talk about obedience, we might say, well, that's good, but I don't really enjoy obedience to God. You know, it doesn't necessarily make me feel good. Although I will say, when you study the Torah carefully, you see that just as we read in the Bible, it is for our good. And if we really live the Torah way of life, we would keep ourselves out of trouble in so many ways that we get into trouble. Whether it's in personal relationships, whether it's in legal issues, whether it is relate, you know, relationship things, we would really keep ourselves out of trouble. Financial things, we'd keep ourselves out of trouble if we lived the, this way of life. But... Sometimes when we talk about it, obedience, it doesn't have that sense of, yeah, boy, I really just enjoy obedience and I love it. But, you know, there are several other things. There's a lot, but I'm only going to mention two others. One is we don't get so worried about everything. And wouldn't we love to live a life free of all of that anxiety, right? We take medication for anxiety. Being anxious is like, normal in our world. Worrying is normal in our world. You know, all you have to do is watch the news today, and there's a lot to be worried about, right? It's interesting that you read in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua says this, and we find it here in chapter 6 of uh, Matthew, uh, beginning in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is money. Okay? For this reason, see, it's always important not to start this section in verse 25, because you have to know what the reason is. Okay? So he's saying you can't serve two masters. Now, you could substitute anything else for mammon also. It, it, would, it would work. Okay? You can't have two masters. For this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? And now he's going to go on and he's going to talk about, again, the, about in the animal world, how it's uh, normal for... Uh, you know, uh, birds and the grass and the nature all to uh, uh, be taken care of. So why are you worrying, he says. 
which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And, and so he goes on to talk about uh, uh, being anxious. Okay? But then he says, if you go down to verse 32, for all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. Now, in this context, Gentile simply means pagan. Okay? That's what it means in this context. Okay? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly fathers know that you need all these things. In other words, people that are not believing or seeking or trusting in God are going to worry. That's what, he, that's what that means. But then he says in verse 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, do you ever notice, you'll bet you've read this a thousand times, but do you ever notice that when you read it, that this section about not worrying is couched in between, you can't serve two masters and seek first the kingdom of God. That's kind of interesting, that it's like a sandwich. The top piece of bread says you can't serve two masters. The bottom piece of bread says seek first the kingdom of God. So reading the book, How to Win Over Worry, will not cure you from being worried, okay? But recognizing that there's only one king and recognizing that my priorities need to be right. When my priorities are right and I'm seeking God wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, okay? That that's how we don't worry, when we trust God thoroughly. In a way, you know, following God in, in a certain respect is it's very simple. It's not about you have to have enough knowledge. It's you, do, you have to have enough trust. You have to have enough trust. And we'll come back, we'll come back to this, but I want us to observe here that, wow, if I live a repentant life, a life of constantly turning to God, being focused on God, I'm not going to be so anxious. Perhaps that in and of itself might be a motivation for us to take repentance seriously, that it's good for me, it's healthy. You know, that, you know worry and anxiety can take years off your life and, and ruin your life, really, never being able to, to find joy or you know, or, you know, pure joy or just, uh, you know, uh, appreciation or satisfaction. It robs you of everything. And so there's very practical manifestations of repenting and trusting God. Okay. Uh, and then now there's another thing, one other thing. And that is another way that we know that uh, we are living a repentant life. Right? We know we're living a repentant life if, generally speaking, I'm, I'm living a Torah way of life. When I sin, I confess my sins, and I trust God, and I keep going. Secondly, I, I, uh, I am not worried so much uh, about all the things uh, that, are, uh, that, that are going on. I'm, I'm trusting God. I'm, I'm being diligent, and I'm not sticking my head in the sand, but I'm not getting stomach aches. I'm not getting headaches over. I'm not losing my mind. I, uh, uh, over, over things, I am indeed uh, a, a trusting a God. So there's a third one, humility and deference, okay? Humility and deference. You know you're living a repentant life if uh, you are living a life of uh, uh, humility and, uh, and deference, okay? Uh, I want us to look in two quick places. One is in Leviticus chapter 19, in Vayikra chapter 19, okay? You know, uh, in looking at the Torah, sometimes it's not, we shouldn't always look at it as, 
boy, I don't measure up, and, and, and this is telling me and convicting me. We know from the New Covenant that is a function of the Torah to convict us of our sin, but it does not exhaust the entire meaning of the Torah, okay? Uh, one, way, one thing it does, it's, it's sort of like taking our temperature, that we can look at the Torah and say, yes, that is indeed, I'm, I'm, I'm living, uh, generally speaking, living this way, and it, and it serves as a great encouragement to us. So when you read here in verse 14, you shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. Okay. Basically what that is saying is don't take advantage of vulnerable people. Don't take advantage of vulnerable people, but be helpful, be kind, Help, you know, be, be uh, kind and, and helpful to people. But it's interesting what he says. He doesn't say, you shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall bless a deaf man and you shall help a blind person walk across the street. It doesn't say that. After it says, you shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, it says, you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. That is the repentant life. We'll do the right thing if we're revering God. We'll do the right thing if he really is our king, if he really is our Lord, and we're living that way, and we're focused on, on him that way. That's the repentant way of life. And what a great way to live. Because, you know, it's not a horrible thing to feel good about yourself if you do the right thing. Some people preach, oh, if you feel good about yourself, it's the flesh. Ay, that's, you know, who can, you know, we spend our whole day thinking, have I, am I too nice to myself? And thinking that, am I, you know, no. You know, it's not, uh, this is not rocket science, right? When you do the right thing, it is good to feel good. Don't you feel good if you please your employer? Don't you feel good if you please a parent? Don't you feel good if you please your spouse? You feel good. You feel great when you please God. I mean, you should feel great and have a sense of satisfaction. You're not patting yourself on the back. It's, it's saying, yes, that's, you know, there's a sense of satisfaction when we are walking in the way of the Lord, you know? Uh, and that's why if you ever have the opportunity to stand up for Yeshua, to not be ashamed of the gospel, and to share with someone the good news of Messiah, what an exhilarating feeling comes along with that. You have, you have really represented the Lord in that moment. Same thing with all these, all these other things. And so to live that repentant life uh, is to be humble and to show deference toward people. Now, there's a great passage in the New Covenant about this, and that is in Philippians, in the second chapter. I don't have time to un undo the whole thing here, but it says this in verses two, uh, 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. Think like Yeshua. Have the same kind of attitude that he did. And then there is uh, this uh, great, marvelous description of here, the very incarnation of God, you know, the Lord himself humbles himself, not only by taking on human flesh, but by dying, but by, but by becoming obedient to the point of death, even 
as a criminal. Wow, that's really showing deference. That's real humility, see? Now, that was not easy for Yeshua to do. Do ne never get the idea that, well, well, he's the Lord, so it was like, okay, time to suffer, time to die, because I'm coming back, so, you know, let's, let's get this done, right? No, right? Didn't, don't we read that he prayed and like, you know, blood like sweat came upon him? Don't we read that he actually prays, Lord, let this cup pass from me? It was hard. But you see, but as a person, he, was the, he lived the ultimate repentant life. Not that he turned ever had to turn from sin, but the, the facing God part, he was always there. And he really describes for us that kind of, uh, that kind of life. Humility and deference. So a life of satisfaction, obedience, not worrying, humility, deference, that's pretty good. We should really desire to live. It's, a, it's quite a quality kind of life to be able to live, to make a difference in people's lives, to uh, walk with God, keep ourselves out of all the entanglements uh, that, that can come our way, and, and, I, uh, you know, and to show uh, humility and deference. Okay, so, so how do I really get there? How do I get there? All right, well, uh, yes, it is turning from sin, turning to, to God. But let's turn to a particular passage. Turn with me to 1 Samuel for a second. 1 Samuel, we're right, there, right by our Haftorah portion. Okay, in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So uh, Samuel gives a word to uh, the Israelites. And this is what he says. Verse 3. Uh, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return, this is what it is, if you repent, if you turn to the Lord, if you turn to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Here we have very succinctly, what does it mean? How do I get there? Okay, so the first thing is all your heart. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Of course, that harkens back to the Shema, no doubt, right? To love God with every ounce of our, uh, every ounce of our being, right? With all of our hearts. So what does that tell us? It tells us there's no 50 percenters. When, when we really live the way of life that God desires for us, for our best, for our good, for joy, for peace, for you halfway. You can't say, well, it's Shabbat, you know, I'll go to the service. Or, uh, uh, you know, live a life where, where we have added Yeshua to everything else that we're interested in. It doesn't work. No matter how hard you try to follow God, unless he has all of you, you're either in or you're just going to always be struggling spiritually and like, just be like crawling to God at all times. It's a choice. And don't we read this choice everywhere in the Bible, right? Folly and wisdom, life and death. That's my favorite in Deuteronomy. I've given you before you life and death. Why would anybody choose death, right? No. Life, life is serving God wholeheartedly. Look, I'm as big a, a sports fan as anybody else here. And, uh, and I have to confess 
that I get excited when, you know, uh, when my favorite teams are doing their thing and thinking about it and all that. But it leads me to think to myself, wow, if I can, by my own will, because it makes me feel good, just because I, because I like it, if I can be so interested and so consumed with it, why can't, why can't I be that consumed and interested about the things of God? It's not like this mystical thing that I got to wait to happen to me to, to really be focused and dive into God. It's a desire of your will. Do you want it or do you not want it? That is a, a real question, you know? And you know what's really interesting is that, you know, my, uh, my favorite baseball team is hated by most of America. You know what I mean? Okay? So uh, my son will tell you, we loved, we love, like, to go up to Detroit, you know, uh, and go to baseball games there. Or, you know, go up to Cleveland and go to baseball games there. Because people are looking at you like, oh, those New York guys, you know? Well, look at that. It, you know, a little persecution, right? With a little, very little P. But so what are we so afraid of? Why are we ashamed of the gospel? Why are we ashamed to stand up for what I believe and to, and to dive in to our relationship with God and to remember what I said last night? After you turn from the sin, face him and keep walking toward him. It's all good. It's all good. And so wholehearted devotion to God. Now, when I say wholehearted devotion to God like that, and when I say all good, it doesn't mean that everything works out in the circumstances of life, but what it means is whatever the circumstances of life are, I can be victorious and walk through them. Okay, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, you know, I don't know, just lately I've been thinking a lot about him and a lot about his life, and he was, again, a German... Uh, believer, he was a theologian, a pastor, and all that. And uh, amazingly, he had many opportunities to escape uh, the Nazis. He even was living in the United States uh, in the mid-1930s. And he could, have he, he could have stayed in the United States, but he felt he needed to go back and be with his people in the time of their despair. And you know who he was referring to there? He was referring to uh, the confessional church in uh, Germany. Uh, those people who were, uh, as believers, going underground and, you know, uh, standing up for the gospel and facing a, a great persecution. Well, anyway, he wrote, uh, uh, not only was a theologian, he was also a poet. And I want to read to you a poem that he wrote. It's called, Who Am I? It's kind of famous. Maybe you've heard of it. Who am I? Okay, so he suffered greatly and he was martyred. Okay? He goes, who am I? They often tell me I stepped out of my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country home. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my wardens freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune uh, equably, smilingly, proudly, 
like an accustomed, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless, longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing an, ex- tossing an expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at, at making faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others? And before myself a contemptible, woe-be-gone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, you know, O God, I am yours. What a uh, poignant uh, uh, statement. In other words... We should never get the idea that living this kind of life means no worries, no, no problem, you know? It means that we can, we can walk through and get through whatever comes our way. But internally, we all have questions. We all are weak. But when I am weak, then I am strong in Him, in the Lord. And this is how Dietrich Bonhoeffer was able to be an overcomer, was able to be strong, was able to write all these things while, you know, while, while being in prison. Not because he now had a mind that was just, uh, it doesn't matter. It mattered a lot. But you see, he was wholly given over to God. And so he never succumbed, you know? He writes in his letters from prison, I don't have it quoted, but he says, you know, I, dying is not the problem. I, I'm, or uh, death is not the problem. Death is taken care of, you know. Uh, I'll be with the Lord. Dying is the, uh, you know, is what uh, oftentimes we fear, but not death itself. Uh, and he had this tremendous assurance, see, so the, the point being that while, yes, there's, it's, uh, life can certainly be a struggle, but in the Messiah, we know our destiny. We know where we're going. We know our Redeemer lives. So when we read here in 1 Samuel, he says, Return to the Lord with all your heart. Then it's, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. So it means looking at our lives and saying, where are, what are the things that are barriers to my walk with God? The question is not what do I really like or dislike or something like that. What in life do I like? And I got to remove everything that I like. But what is a barrier? What are things that I'm involved in or I watch or I do or I go to or, a, uh, or I even believe in or whatever that is a barrier to wholehearted devotion to God? Those are the things we need to think about and remove. Then we read here, direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. 
Direct your heart to the Lord. That is a great little statement. Direct your heart to the Lord. What's the difference between, uh, we might ask, uh, returning with all your heart and directing your heart to the Lord? Well, there's a little bit of a nuance uh, here. Uh, Direct your heart to the Lord means to do everything that you do intentionally. Direct your heart to the Lord in all the things that, that you do. Live intentionally. You know, there is a uh, Hebrew uh, um, value, call it. Uh, it's called kavanah, right? Uh, the intention or devotion of the heart. And it's used uh, in relationship to prayer. It's used by uh, ancient rabbis and rabbis today who are just old. <laughs> uh, uh, to when you, when you use it, siddur, and when you pray, that make the prayers your own. You know, that, that pray intentionally, not just say the words, but pray intentionally uh, as, as your own, right? Internalize those prayers. Put yourself in the prayer, so to speak, right? But I would suggest that we can do that with everything that we do in life. You know, that we uh, live uh, in, intentionally. So it's interesting that, as I was saying uh, uh, last night, how uh, Paul, when he's talking to young Timothy, tells him to rekindle the fire, you know, that's in you. You're, you're getting a little sloppy. Uh, you know, you're getting fearful about everything around you. And so he tells him, uh, and he reminds him, that in the Lord, you know, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, cowardice, but of power and love and, and right thinking and redeemed thinking, right? Uh, well, it's interesting that he describes this in a couple of places. I mentioned one that was very important to me in my decision, in my uh, big decision that, that brought me to this place today where I am, right? Uh, back in 1978, I mentioned that last night. But I want to read it to you, and uh, two illustrations that Paul gives to Timothy about living in such a way where you can really grasp onto this and really live this kind of life. One is in the second chapter. He says to him, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Messiah Yeshua. You notice he says, suffer hardship with me. So I'm here to say it's, it's not peaches and cream, but it is full of joy and peace and satisfaction, even in the midst of the whole thing. He says, no soldier, so he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Messiah Yeshua. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in, in everything. Then he says uh, about what to tell people. He says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Okay? So he says that. 
Then he also uh, happens to say this. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Messiah Yeshua. So he's saying, live a, live a disciplined life, you know, be focused in, uh, be focused uh, in your life. Uh, and I would just suggest, because not enough time, I would say be focused in uh, one, of the, one of the ways that, that really has a transformative effect on your life is in the way that you're focused on the way you encounter the Word of God, the way you encounter the Word of God, the, the way you read the Bible. You know, uh, there's a great verse that says, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Boy, I didn't know the Bible could do that, right? When we read it intentionally, when we read it recognizing that uh, God desires to interact with us, so we read it slowly and meaningfully, also in our fellowship with other people, when we meet together, when we meet as brothers and sisters in Messiah intentionally, sharing with each other the things of God and encouraging one another, worshiping intentionally, when we sing the songs from the heart, when we hear the, the message, not to, not to think, oh, whatever, I've heard that a million times before, but the point is, wow, maybe God has something for me in it, engaging God, listening intentionally, focusing intentionally. Uh, that all has transformative effect on us because it renews our mind. And that is how we really change. And that when we live that way, when, for example, you know, just one uh, last verse that covers everything, you might say, is um, in uh, Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Messiah whom you serve, the Lord Messiah whom you serve. Uh, and so that's living intentionally. And you know, one of the great uh, um, examples of the satisfaction that comes from that, even in the midst of life difficulties, is the beginning of uh, the, the beginning of the book of Psalms. In Psalm 1 we read, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, one who has turned to God, right? One who's living an obedient life. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. What's the result? Not a degree on the wall. It doesn't say that. Not just satisfaction in, in knowing new things. But it says, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. That is the kind of life. This, a, a rich, fruitful, satisfying life in the midst of the difficulties of life. When we throw ourselves to the Lord, when we make that decision, when we're not living 50% for God, but all the way, and when we mess up, we confess our sins and we just keep going, you will see that, wow, this is the kind of life that 
some people talk about, of living this abundant life. And so when we come and we hear the shofar blow, may it wake us up to say, Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in. Because Yeshua is saying, follow me. And what do we read of those disciples? What did they do? They followed him. When God told Abraham to leave his family and his country, his relatives, he left. When God was looking for a good man, he found Isaiah who had repented, turned from his sins, and he said, Hineni, here I am. Those are our role models of what it means to live indeed for God and live well in the Lord for God. So may Rosh Hashanah this year be a new starting place for us of living that focused kind of life. And may we be able to say, as time goes on this year, well, you know, I'm not worrying as, as much as I have. And, I, and you know, I, I, I feel satisfied in the way that I'm conducting my, my life before God. May we make that kind of move in our lives. Amen.